test. Okay. Are we ready? Oh, we get started. <clears throat> Today we're back in Paul Tripp's books, book Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, People in Need of Change, Helping People in Need of Change. So why don't we start with prayer real quick? Father, we just ask you please to work in our hearts this morning and cause us to think hard on these things. And will you please cause today's discussions to be fruitful. And Father, please bring us new insights. And um, we just know that our hearts uh, need you. We just pray that you will uh, work in us every day to make us more and more like Christ. Please give us a thirst to be like Christ. And uh, um, please bring about your change in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're on, today we're on chapter 4, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, chapter 4, The Heart is the target, and I've I've uh, I've caved and put a PowerPoint together this morning, and but you're about to find out why I'm not a graphic artist. So, these people draw near me with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and the reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. I think we're all guilty of this at one time or other in our lives, and uh, probably be guilty of it today. And uh, um, but it's it's so true that so many times we do things, we go through the motions, and we fail to uh, we fail to stop and honor God with our hearts. Uh, the heart is definitely the target. Tripp's, Tripp's premise in this chapter is the, if you're looking for lasting change in a person, you have to go for the heart. The heart is the target. And we all know this from our own personal experience with ourselves, and we also know it from, from our personal experience with others. And, uh, you know, you can tell the teenager to take out the trash. That doesn't mean his heart's in it. And uh, we're, we've all been that teenager who took out the trash and grumbled all the way to the dumpster. <clears throat> Tripp has a fear of externals. And uh, an external would be washing the outside of the cup that we, have, uh, that we have read about so many times. We wash the outside of the cup. And, and again, Tripp comes back in this chapter and says... Uh, you know, his same fear that he has in what that he brought out in his marriage seminar, he brings out again in this book over and over. That so many times when we minister to people, when we try to talk to people saying you need to change, we focus on the externals. You need to be going to church. Uh, that's an external. It doesn't mean that anybody's hearts change just because they are inside a church building. It doesn't, you know... Yeah, I'll, I'll come back in a little bit, but uh, obviously 
Our goal is not to get people into church. Our goal is to minister to people's hearts and try to uh, uh, encourage them and minister to them, and, and the Lord hopefully will bring about a change in these people's hearts. Um, if you remember the example that he gave in his marriage seminar is so many marriage counselors say, you guys need to be having more date nights. That's the external. Where Tripp says, no, we've got a couple of heart problems going on here. We need to get that fixed, and, and, and that's the real fix to a marriage. Did anybody ever see the documentary Blind Sight? It was a 2006 documentary. Kelly and I came across this. It, it didn't exactly get rave reviews at the box office, so maybe you didn't see it, but this was a blind, uh, this guy named Eric Weinmeier, he's the only blind mountain climber ever to scale Mount Everest. And uh, he started, he and I think this lady, started a a school for the blind in Tibet. And uh, they were going to teach six Tibetan teenagers to mountain climb so they could take them up Mount Everest. But the problem with being blind in Tibet is the Buddhist culture. And so these guys were blind because they were paying the price of sins they committed in a prior life. And, or they're demon-possessed, and that's why they're blind. So uh, they're ostracized, severely ostracized. And walking down a sidewalk, they would bump into somebody, and rather than the people helping them out, they would berate them and tell them they needed to be more careful because everybody in that society viewed them as criminals, and, uh, and they viewed themselves as criminals. So what kind of... Uh, what kind of reaction do you have, you know, when you think about people who deserve to be in prison um, and they ask for uh, some special right, like the right to vote, and you instantly say, no, you're a criminal, you can't do that. And that's the way these poor blind kids were viewed in Tibet. And this one young man even said, I don't know what I did that was wrong, but it must have been pretty bad. So he even viewed himself that way. And, uh, and so we probably have a tendency to look at that and say, well, that's really sad that they live in that culture where they're ostracized for being blind. But it came to me one time that in the ninth chapter of John, Jesus comes up to a blind man and his disciples say, for whose sin is he being punished? Is it his own sin or is it his parents' sin? And if you stop and kind of look at that and think about it a little bit, they're bound to have suffered quite a bit of ostracism. Naturally, he wasn't going to be able to find a job. Maybe his parents couldn't find a job because you have a blind son. Obviously, there's some kind of sin in your life, and you're just not willing to admit it. And um, <clears throat> so it's not, what I want to bring this up for is a couple of things. It is not just the Buddhist who have this situation. It is, it is everyone who has this tendency. We see it in first century Palestine. We can see it in our own lives. We all have a tendency to be this way, to look down on the blind. And there are warnings in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And God says, don't put things in the way of a blind man. Don't move the furniture around, you know. Help, help the blind. You're not to look down on these people. You're not to... to uh, 
uh, see them as, as people that there's something wrong with them. Here's why I bring this up. A few weeks ago, when we were first introducing this book, remember I said, you, you probably don't remember anything I said there. It, none of it was all that monumental, but <clears throat> that you might not agree with everything Tripp has to say in this book. And we're not asking you to agree with everything that Tripp says in this book, but it will start and maybe help to, to feed the conversation. And I think that's what we have here this morning is some conversation. Because not I, myself, I'm not in the camp that says every time somebody has a problem, it's a sin problem. And, and other people would say it is a sin problem. I think that sin surrounds so much of what we do and contributes so much to what, who we are that it's hard to differentiate. But there are some places where maybe it's not a sin problem. You just need to work with this while realizing that, that there is a lot of sin in your life. If the one who sees our hearts has not clearly identified something as a sin, we should not clearly identify that as a sin. At the same time, we don't want to make the mistake of saying that sin is not sin. And so if it is a sin, we need to identify that and we need to deal with it as sin. So but I bring this up just so that we kind of, as we're going through this chapter, and if you've read this chapter, uh, maybe stand back and, and, and say, well, where does Tripp come from on this? And uh, I'm not sure that Tripp really spells it out. Um, so, like, maybe an example. <clears throat> is it a sin to be a perfectionistic homemaker? Is that a sin? Or is it a sin to be less than a perfectionistic homemaker? Which one of those is the sin? Is either of them a sin? And at what point does it become sin? You know, we tend to look at this and say, well, you're just being slothful. Over here, you're not a perfectionistic homemaker. Over here, you're saying, well, you're a perfectionistic homemaker. Obviously, you're looking for somebody's approval, or you're making a, an idol out of your house. You know, where, where is the sin in there? And we've got to be careful because we do have this tendency right here. <clears throat> By the way, I think blindsight... The word blindside, where that comes from, is a kinetic sense with which blind people see. Even though they can't consciously see things, they have this kinetic sense of things. And I think that's what that, that term refers to. So that's, that is just an aside. So, you remember I talked uh, not long ago, the other day, I mentioned that I read this book by David Burns. And he had this list of 10. This is the original list right here of these cognitive distortions, and they were working with, with uh, that slide's a little distorted, couldn't think of it, but the, uh, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> that, that they were working with severely depressed people. And they said, look, here, here's, a, here's some 10, 10 places where you're probably not thinking correctly. Let's start here, and let's start working with you and get your thinking correct. And so I wanted you to see this list and is to develop the thought that so many things that take place, our responses to life, come from our hearts. And, and in fact, after I 
studied this book, I came to the conclusion that everything we do comes from our hearts. All our responses to life come to uh, come from our hearts, and here's just one of them. If you look here, it's down there in, in about two-thirds of the way down, magnifying or minimizing. We'll just be, we'll take this one for an example. Magnifying and minimizing, the, the most common uh, example you see of that is when you look at the accomplishments of, some, of other people, you look through the correct end of the binoculars and you magnify their accomplishments. But when you look at your accomplishments, you look through the back end of the binoculars. You turn them around, look through, through the big end, and you minimize uh, your accomplishments. So you say, everybody else is so accomplished, what have I ever done? And uh, so that's just one example. You have two people go out and play a game of golf. Each person shoots a 75. This golfer says, man, I, I went and played golf today, just had the best time. Shot a 75. I'm playing the best golf I've ever played in my life. The other person says, I missed a putt on the first hole, and it ruined my whole day. I don't know why. What kind of idiot am I that I missed such a simple putt? And that colors the whole game when everybody else is standing back going, dude, you shot 75, you know? And uh, So why is it that one person would, you, you have the same event there, the same event that each side of 75, each person had a different experience and it's what comes out of their hearts that caused that to happen, okay? So that's, that's the thought we're trying to develop here. Events are neutral. Until we interpret them, everything comes from our hearts. You see, aren't these just the most amazing slides you've ever seen? <laughs> There's a surprise on every slide, a, a visual, visual surprise here. <laughs> so the trips go to the Grand Canyon. If you haven't read the chapter, uh, the trips go to the Grand Canyon. Mr. Tripp wants to take his family. This is when Paul Tripp was a teenager. And he wants everybody to have a good time at the Grand Canyon. And he doesn't go to the place where all the tourists go, where the fences, where they have fences and and buses. So he takes his family out to a remote area of the Grand Canyon to where you could easily fall off the edge. And, uh, and so the two boys go up. They start playing around at the, at the edge of the canyon and uh, pretending to push each other off. Well, Paul Tripp's mother is afraid of heights, and she can't even get out of the car. But she's concerned about her children. And, and so Tripp... Ex- describes this as she'll start to step out of the car and then she'll uh, get afraid again and get back in the car. And she's talking to Tripp's dad and Tripp's dad is running back and forth trying to corral the two boys and trying to keep his wife happy at the same time. And Tripp says, you know, I don't think my dad had a very good time that day. <laughs> and so, so the event we have is we have the Grand Canyon. We have a father who wants his kids, his family, to have a good time on this trip. And a mother who has a fear of heights, concern for her children. And then we have two teenage boys. This would be a place where I would say it's not, not sinful. I don't think it's sinful for a father to want his family to have a good time. We have a mom here who's concerned for her children. And, uh, and she's afraid of heights. Don't see any sin there. 
Here we have two teenage boys having a good time. That is probably fraught with sin. (laughs) All kinds of iniquity there. (laughs) But you have one event, three different experiences, right? So the thing that kind of concerns me here is, or the thing I couldn't figure out, is that heart goes from what I see as, I mean, trip goes from what I see as an innocuous example here, and he immediately goes talking about sin coming from our hearts. And I'm not sure, it, it's kind of tough to tie together what, what, this, what is Tripp's saying here, or was he just giving this example as here's an innocuous example that you could take and think through this on. What we want to do is we want to think today about the heart is the target. The thing that was difficult for me in getting this lesson ready is I'm coming here to talk to you about the heart is the target. And when we're ministering to others in that context and we say it's not enough, you know, Tripp's definitely giving the warning, don't minister to people with externals. Try to find out what's going on inside somebody's heart and then minister to their hearts. As I'm coming to talk to you this morning, we all need to take a look at our own hearts. And I'm here talking to you want to encourage you to take a look at your heart. At the same time, I have to look at my heart and know what's going on in my heart, know all the times that I rebel. And so that's why this makes this people in need of change, helping people in need of change. Came across this the other day. They were having a discussion uh, AOC was questioning a border customs agent, and she was saying, do we really have a national emergency at the border? And so this Republican congressman said, there's enough fentanyl coming into the United States right now to kill 55 million Americans. I read, I read something that's like two milligrams of fentanyl will kill you, kill most people. And uh, uh, so 55, there's, there's enough. And I forget what the poundage is that's coming in, uh, but it's horrendous. And he said, is it that we have, what constitutes a national emergency? Enough fentanyl to kill 55 million people or enough fentanyl to kill 57 million people? If it gets to 57 million, will we have a national emergency? And then we can close the borders. There will be a strong enough argument to close the borders. What I, the thought I had right there was it, it is what, of just how futile it is to try to correct America's drug problems by closing the border. I really believe we should close the border. But are we going to correct America's drug problem if we close the border? I think here's the number we need to look at. Every morning, 300 million Americans wake up and say, no one can tell me what to do. That's our culture. No one can tell me what to do. And then we wonder why 600 people in Washington, D.C. can't fix the problem. Well, here's the problem right here. Those 300 million hearts. Those 300 million hearts. And it ranges everything from, you can't tell me I can't do drugs. You can't tell me I can't own a gun. 
You can't tell me I have to wear a seatbelt when I drive down the street. We all rebel in our own way. And there's 300 million hearts doing that. And until we win people's hearts, until people come to Christ, until Christ wins people's hearts, we're going to have a drug problem. And we're not going to correct that by closing the border. At the same time, we have to realize that you and I are part of the problem. And, and that we uh, just constantly have to look at our hearts and ask the Lord to work in us and show us our sin. People in need of change. We are people in need of change. I need change. You need change. We all need change. Those people in need of change, helping people in need of change. Well, here's something that will encourage you. People change slowly if they change at all. And I I just think that's one of the most encouraging things I've ever heard. (laughs) This is the person I was telling you about in Dallas. Uh, When Terry Hargrave was getting ready to go into counseling, he was thinking about going into counseling. He went down to Dallas and asked these two counselors for their advice. One of the counselors gave him this advice right here. People change slowly if they change at all. If you have to have immediate feedback, if you've got to have immediate results to feel good about yourself, you don't need to go into counseling because people change slowly if they change at all. So when you are ministering to people and you're trying to, to minister to their hearts, you need to keep in mind that people change slowly if they change at all. What we have to remember is that this applies to us too. We are the same. How many, how many times have you looked at your heart and wondered, has this ever changed at all? And, uh, and so it's, while it's uh, not an encouraging thing, it is also a, uh, a kind of a thing for us to have to stop, a very humbling thing for us to have to stop and think about, that, that we change slowly if we change at all. What is encouraging about this is that we have the comforter. We have the one who breathes new life in us. So when we look at this sentence and we see and we know that this is the truth about us, it drives us to the cross. It makes us dependent on the Lord. And and so that is where if we were left to ourselves, we would be in a real mess. But we're not left to ourselves. And uh, that's where our encouragement comes from. We're singing, we're singing some songs this morning. Um, <clears throat> I didn't choose these songs deliberately to go with this lesson, but as we were singing them this morning, I thought just how... how uh, I wanted to encourage you this morning as you're singing that that's that's definitely one of those areas where we tend to do things by rote and this is something that I do every Sunday morning. I'm not real sure why I do it, but it's a it's a prelude to the sermon. And we were commanded to sing for a reason and God gave us music for a reason and he made us singing creatures for a reason. And it's because it brings about changes in us. 
And it says things to us in a way that nothing else can say it to us. And there's a lot in this morning's songs about your heart. And uh, so kind of just kind of warm you up, set the stage for that That uh, this morning. I, I hope that that's on your mind as we're, as we're singing those songs. <clears throat> we want to shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about idolatry for a minute. You know, we are not a people who, we don't, we don't put things up in front of us. We don't keep fetishes on our shelves. We don't. Uh, I've, I was reading an article one time in a Wall Street Journal about all the people who are keeping fetishes. And this one woman, she has all these little American Indian fetishes, and she says she asks them for advice every morning. We're not people to do that. Our idolatry comes in a covert way. Our idolatry comes in a covert way. And, uh, and that's where ours comes from. What kind of idols do we have in our hearts? And uh, <clears throat> we don't let, you know, I've never bowed to my idols and said, you're my God, you're my maker, uh, you're the one who created me. I don't. But I hold those things, I, I do hold those things as my idols. And uh, um, I won't go into any details there, but you have your idols. And uh, uh, why do we do wrong things? Why do I do wrong things? Let's turn to Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 25. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of incorruptible man and of birds, four-footed creatures, four-footed animals and crawling creatures. This is why we do wrong things. We do wrong things because there are things we desire more than we desire God. There are things that we think are going to give us worth uh, that cannot give us worth, but we do those things because we think they're going to give us worth. We forget where our worth comes from. This was a tough, kind of tough thing for me to figure out one time. Somebody asked this question, where does your worth come from? Do you have to earn it or is it given to you? And I was in the middle of working on a, a degree and uh, or I had just finished that degree up, I guess, and uh, I had had six years of night school, and it, it had been a chore, and it had preoccupied just about everything. You know, anybody who's gotten a degree knows how much that preoccupies all your thinking, and you just keep thinking, when I get finished with this degree, I'm going to be somebody special. There's going to be something about me that I didn't have yesterday, and uh, so when... I first heard this question, I went, well, of course you have to earn your degree, your, your worth. You have to earn your worth because uh, that's what makes you valuable to an employer. That's what makes you valuable to the people around you. And uh, I keep coming back to this one sentence I read one time. I mean, when I read this sentence, the room got dark. 
It was uh, Bertrand Russell, the, the, the uh, famed atheist Bertrand Russell. And just to paraphrase what he said, he said, uh, I think I've said this before, uh, man's greatest accomplishment at the noonday of man's existence is beyond debate that that will lie buried beneath the ruins of a failed solar system. Well, that's true. Uh, Bertrand, unfortunately, Bertrand Russell said, that's it. <laughs> that's all it is. And, uh, and I, uh, what, there's something to wake up for every morning. <laughs> is, why, would I, why would I get out of bed every morning if that's what's true about life? Do you, do you earn your worth or is it given to you? How could I earn my worth? After all these years... I'm just a tiny speck of dust on a little blue dot in a huge, huge universe. How could we earn any lasting worth? Your worth is given to you. Your worth was given to you when God made you in his image. And he said, I made you, you're worthwhile. And if that's where your worth comes from, it can't be taken away from you. But instead of looking at that and saying, that's where my worth comes from, and it can't be taken away from me. We look around for other things to get our worth. And those are the idols that are in our hearts. And when we pursue those things and look for our worth to come from those things, we're saying there's something here that I desire more than I desire God. And that's our covert idolatry. Our covert idolatry, the things that we hold important, the things that we think this is where my worth comes from, has an inescapable influence on us. Uh, it drives what we do. If this is where my worth comes from, I, have a, I, I really have a drive in me to have worth. And so if I've got an idol set up there and I think that's, that's where my worth comes from, it's going to influence everything I do have to remember that all your choices and actions come from what you pursue, from what you think is important. They always reveal the desires of your heart. My choices and actions always reveal the desires of my heart. You know, we started out talking about this, that uh, we react to life based on what we think is true about life. It all comes from our most basic assumptions about life. Everything we do comes out of those desires. So if you want to know what is functionally ruling a person's heart, uh, you, you're trying to find this. What functionally rules a person's heart in this situation? When you're ministering to somebody, and, uh, and maybe you're, you're saying, well, I've got kind of a tough nut to crack here. Um, or this person is, uh, really does need someone to talk to him. Let's just take a, a case like that, like me. <laughs> and uh, you say, well, what is functionally ruling this person's heart in this situation? Regardless what the situation is, what's driving that person's behavior is what's inside that person's heart. It's either an idle or a false belief, or something. Uh, it could be a good belief. It could be a good belief. I mean, people who, uh, who have good beliefs, those beliefs 
functionally rule that person's heart. Okay? What controls my heart controls my responses. It's uh, really, really true. What controls your heart controls your responses. What you get out of bed every morning and do, what you set as your priorities, uh, how you respond when you shoot a 75 in golf, what controls my heart controls my responses. Look at this. God changes us by recapturing our hearts. You will never say anything to a person that will change their heart. You will never do anything to change this person's heart. You just bring the message. It is God who's going to change people's hearts. Keep that in mind. Uh, you'll, never, you'll never say anything so compelling that you'll bring somebody to Christ. Christ brings people to Christ. And, uh, uh, but isn't this encouraging? That the one who knows our hearts is the one who's changing our hearts. And worship. He, he, uh, he has one little, last little segment at the end of this chapter on treasure. And uh, I kind of saw it as maybe an afterthought he stuck in that, so we're not going to cover it this morning because I thought he should have put that up earlier in the chapter. <laughs> but it comes down to this. Worship. Worship is the deepest issue in our hearts. What do you worship? And uh, so much of our sin, well, our sin does come from that. We worship something else besides God. It's the fundamental issue of the whole thing. Do I want to worship me? Do I want to worship God? Do I want the world to worship me? Do I want the world to worship God? And in everything we do, in everything we do, we're worshiping something. You will worship something. If you can't find anything else to worship, you'll worship yourself. That's, it's just as true as it can be. And you remember, this is what Tripp, this, so this book is true to what Tripp told us in the wedding seminar, you know, the marriage seminar. If you guys remember this, let's just a brief reminder. Uh, Tripp says the problem in marriages is not a horizontal problem. It's a vertical problem. You have two kingdoms warring with each other, not the husband and wife warring with each other. The husband is warring with God. The wife is warring with God. You've got two vertical battles going on here. And when you work on that vertical problem, then you're able to work on this horizontal problem. Um, it, he's, true, he's true to that philosophy here in this book, that our problem is what do we worship? Do we worship God? Do we worship ourselves? Do we worship other things? And that's, that's, that's the issue. So, I, 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 this, is, this is two times I've done this. I've finished early enough that we can have some in-class discussion and some, some thoughts. If... Uh, <laughs> Is that it? Yeah. I I really worry that I'm not. I've really worried that that I'm not prepared because I'm out here working on a subject that I don't have that much knowledge in and that much background in, and I'm going, am I talking through my hat up here? And uh, and so it might just be that we have 
some time left over because I'm out of material. <laughs> but I, I think uh, I do want to come back. Uh, there's, there is a place for a discussion here, a conversation of, you remember I said last time, that these, uh, that these guys at the University of Pennsylvania were working with deeply depressed people, seriously depressed people, and through this list of ten things, these cognitive distortions, people were coming out of their depression. But there is never a mention in that book of, you know, you have a sin problem. And, uh, and so what, when you come over to the Christian Counseling Foundation, that Tripp works with, David Pallison, uh, they're adding a sin element. They're saying, we might need to work on those things, but there's a huge sin problem here we need to work with. So I would think that maybe some of our conversations would be is when is a person sinning? And how much of it is sin? Is there anything here that's not really sin? It's just a problem we need to work on. And I would think that's where our conversation would be here. When I finished this chapter, I'm, you know, as I'm reading through the chapter, I was thinking, I was thinking, uh, I was thinking, I'm not sure I agree with that. But then, as I finished the chapter, I'm going, okay, if I if I don't agree with it, why do I not agree with it? And if I thought about it a little bit harder, would I come around to agreeing with it? So this is one of those one of those chapters I think that does challenge you. To go, you're going to have to go think about it some, and and think it, think it through. So I I did get that. You know, so many books you read, you kind of leave and you go, okay, I finished that one. But this one right here, I think, is a good one to take, and go talk about and think about, and and uh, so. Does anybody have anything that they'd like to add, Rod? That's a good comment, and I didn't, yeah, that was convicting last week, wasn't it? But you're right, you're right. If we were left with just knowing that we have the perversity of our own natures to get us through life, we would be in a lot of, there just wouldn't be anything at all encouraging about that knowledge. And that, that knowledge probably isn't that encouraging. What's encouraging is there is a Redeemer. And, and that God did not leave us here by ourselves. It's just, you know, it's just an amazing thing. Uh, when we get ready to sin, uh, we don't, or when we are sinning, those are times when we don't want to be close to God. But what the reality is that every morning when we wake up, the reality is that this God is there. He is not silent. And he has come to us, and he actively pursues us. When he forgives, he moves toward us. That is, that is the encouraging thing of the gospel, and just what you're saying right there. Anyone? Right. Beginning with regeneration. Can I, right, real quick, uh, we, we have a word for this. We have a word for this change. We call it sanctification. And I think an unfortunate thing about our studies in theology, and when we're talking about theology and stuff, we've come up with all these academic terms. We've got sanctification, 
got soteriology. We we got uh, uh, I can't think of it right now. Imputation. And we talk about these big terms, and we go, man, I got to learn that stuff, and I got to know what those words mean. This right here is just a real down close and personal sanctification. Takes that big academic word, brings it home to us. What is sanctification? Changing your heart. God is changing your heart. And uh, this is where our theology gets down close and personal to us. Right? Uh, You bring up a good point that, yeah, no one said this would be easy. And, And there's a lot of complexity here before you find out what's in that person's heart. It's, it's, it's a real, it's an intimate involvement with a person. And uh, um, so the people around you with whom you're intimately involved, you know, it's just that, that constant conversation that goes on. When you find out where a person's heart is or try to determine where a person's heart is. And sometimes you just can't get past the facade to, like you might see it, how do you convince them? How do you get them to see it? Those are these are complex, ongoing issues. And it goes back to people change slowly if they change at all. So even even after everybody sees it, <laughs> but it, it's it's going to be it's people are complex, and the the complex issues of getting down to that. I, I found this out last year that a church. I really discovered what the family of the church is. Uh, And part of being that family is our involvement with each other, which allows us to minister to each other, to hold each other accountable for sin. And uh, we were talking about this not long ago. We have decades of relationships here, decades. And... uh, I take that for granted a lot of times. Somebody reminded me of it not long ago. Look how long we've known each other, how long we've been close to each other. Um, That's the church. And it's just an amazing thing that God gave us the church. That all the things that we do that we think are going to be so great, God gave us this one simple thing, the church. And he said, here's what you need. And... uh, and, that, and so I think that, that what you're talking about, the, the difficulty of finding out what's in people's hearts comes from long-term relationships with people and close relationships. And it is. He comforts so we can comfort. Trip has a sentence, and I, you know, I won't be able to remember exactly how Trip says it, but he says... Uh, he says that one of the one of the thrusts of this book, one of the common threads that goes through this book, is that as God changes your heart, He prepares you to help to be an instrument in the lives of other people. So yes, it's it's definitely God changes us so we can become instruments. God comforts us so we can comfort others. That's an, imp- that's an important point. Did you all hear that? What Dennis said is that 
that uh, there comes times when we need confrontation. We always need confrontation on our sin. I'm not willing to admit my sin. I I admit my sin only when I'm confronted with my sin, only when I'm convicted of my sin or maybe someone comes to me and confronts me with it. So that confrontation has to be there. So two things going on is somebody has to be willing to confront me. I need to be willing to be confronted. And a repentant, contrite heart is going to be willing to be confronted. I'm, when I'm in my, when I have a favorite sin, favorite idol, and someone confronts me about that, I'm not willing to do that. <laughs> I don't want to go through that procedure. What I think is wonderful about God is, I mean, no, I mean yeah, it's what I think. So, so we we can take it to the bank. <laughs> it just came to me not long ago that. God is such a merciful God. He doesn't come to you and berate you. He doesn't come to you and beat you up and tell you how much you are a sinner. If you look at the way God works and everything that he said in his word and all his dealings with people, he is such a merciful God. And he says, I'm bringing healing to you. I'm bringing this... uh, uh, I'm not here to confront you. I'm not here to punish you. I'm not here to, if you do what I tell you to do, I'm going to bring new life to you, and I'm going to lead you to that. So, so when we confront other people, we need to have that same mercy and that same grace to reflect God's mercy and grace. Yeah. So we do that if we love each other. Anybody? Any? Yes, ma'am. Sure. We can all work on this this morning. <laughs> you see, they're even in different places. You notice that that movement there, <laughs> right, right here. Well, uh, Roxanne's an earth. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. At our most vulnerable moment. <laughs> right. I would say, well, my first thought is we have the same tattoo and two different reactions. But, uh, uh, so uh, uh, <laughs> it says, I think the thing on externals is that we ground a teenager, we ground a rebellious teenager. And that teenager will behave himself as long as he's grounded. When you remove that external restraint, they're going to go right back to what they were doing because their hearts weren't there. That's why so many kids grow up in our churches and, and go through all the motions in youth group and then they get out on their own and they go do what is really in their hearts, which is what we all do. And so we have applied externals to those people, but we didn't have their hearts. And so it's a combination of, 
a person who's practicing the externals to look good to others, but it's also a deal of how much stuff do we do that's a, that we apply externals to people, but we don't minister to their hearts. And uh, Exactly, exactly. And that's what this is right here. The world's bombarding you with your trash, with its trash. And it, where we fail with, I think where we fail, are you saying where we fail with like a team, team group is that we fail to give them a good worldview? <clears throat> yeah. Your most, your most basic assumption about life is your worldview. You know, what, what do you see? Who do you see God as? Who do you see yourself in relationship to God? I would say that's just one of our most fundamental, if not the most fundamental assumption we make in life. And the way we react to life is how we see that right there. It all flows out of our hearts. So, but... Right, right. Let me... Lydia, what kind of question did you have on this list? I'm sorry. Oh, I just wanted to correct that. This one? Okay. Let's go through it, Rue. We have just a couple of minutes. This was, uh, this was life-changing, and I, I think it's changed a lot of people's lives. You have this first one, is all-or-nothing thinking. It's either everything is all good or it's all bad. I'm either a complete failure or I'm completely good. And... Uh, uh, which is not true of any of us. Uh, overgeneralization, I can't really remember that. Mental filter is the ability to see a negative in anything. You know, you know if, you, if you noticed around here in the winter, uh, everything takes on a yellow hue because everything's being filtered out of the sun. It's rays. The sun's a little lower toward the south, and everything gets filtered out of the world's rays except the yellows. If you notice around December, January, the entire city of Amarillo just kind of has this yellow cast to it. If you'll watch for it, it's really one of my favorite things about that time of year. <clears throat> we disqualify the positive. People, people pay you, um, people pay you a compliment, and you say, oh, it was nothing at all. Yeah, mind reading is when you're trying to figure out what people think about you. I always go around trying to figure that out. Uh, predicting the future. Everybody at this party is going to hate me. I'm going to walk into this party, and it's just going to go bad. And uh, he gives an example like that in this book. Um, <clears throat> magnifying, minimizing, we've been over that. Emotional reasoning is uh, uh, you do everything based on how you feel rather than maybe sitting back and saying, what does the situation actually look like? Should statements. I should have done this, I should have done that. You're just pounding yourself all the times with shoulda, coulda, wouldas, you know. And then uh, labeling and mislabeling. Uh, this is where you label people uh, with various labels that you could apply to people. And uh, so it's a, it's a, if you stop and think about these things, they uh, uh, you will find out a lot about yourself and a lot about how life works. Remember, though, that in this list, there's nothing here said about any kind of sin in your life. And where we really need to deal with things is that, you know, 
ultimately, is where are we sinning? And that's what we're here primarily to talk about today. You know, there's a lot said about that, and everybody says uh, we're, we're all so concerned about our self-esteem, and it's said in a very negative way. We are a very narcissistic culture, and we tend to think about ourselves a lot, and we probably tend to think about ourselves too much. It, you're right, Art, these things do address a self-esteem issue. But uh, done, I think, in a right way, with the right frame of mind, that this world doesn't revolve around me, I think that the things on this list are, are pretty good things. Uh, I'm not one to completely discount all discussions of self-esteem. I just think that we've raised it probably to too high a level in, in our culture because we are so self-focused and so self. And, and a lot of times on this list, when you're working on this list, you do have to address self-focus, <laughs> you know. Exactly. Yeah. Well, exactly. That's why people are depressed. And as uh, is, is they do, they've been beaten up. Life has beaten them up. And the way they're beginning to react to life is, is negatively. And so it's a combination of things. And, uh, uh, but, and that would be one. Let's, this art brings up a good example there. Um, what would be a sin if, if I said, this is everything that's causing depression? And you said, no, we've got to talk about sin. What would be a sin that you could talk about that might surround this list? And it might be your self-focus, your self-absorption. <laughs> You're just constantly thinking about yourself, and we need to talk about that. And, uh, uh, and then, of course, in saying that... Um, there comes a point, well, self-focus becomes sin, <laughs> you know. So, you know, we're, we're out of time. So, I'm sorry, Marty, did you? Right. Exactly. This list by itself is not the answer. Yeah. So... But I, I, I put this list up here for this reason, right here. Going back to what Aletha said, the world bombards you every day, and it's coming at you really hard right now. And you will lose it, get discouraged, if you don't always come back to your worldview about God and your relationship with Him. And understand that's a merciful God. In every reaction, every response you have to life, 
and all the people around you, every reaction, every response they have to life comes out of what's inside their hearts and what they believe and, uh, and, the, and any sin happens to be in their hearts. Okay? It's true about me. It's true about you. It's true about everybody. So, okay, we're out of time. Thanks.